Turn with me to John chapter 12. And I want to apologize for being absent last Sunday. Um, I wasn't well. And I want to thank Steve for jumping in there and, and preaching for me. Uh, I had asked him some time ago, or we had talked. I can't remember if I asked or you asked, but we talked about him doing John 13 which put us out of order because he started in John 13 last week and I had not yet done John 12, but we're okay with that. And so uh, we're going to jump into John 12. And I want to encourage you, if you have time, to go back and, and catch up on some of these sermons through John. It's going to teach you a lot about who Jesus is. I mean, that's the purpose of the whole thing. So if you've missed some Sundays... Or maybe you're like, man, I haven't caught hardly any of these. Hey, go back to the beginning and maybe start over again. Um, hearing the whole thing in context would be really good, I think, for any of us. And it, it's just exciting that uh, John is all about Jesus, as is the whole word. But here we are once again pointing uh, to Jesus. Um, we come to John chapter 12, and it is... Six days before Passover. And Jesus' appointed time has come. I remember Jesus kept saying, it's not yet my hour, it's not yet my hour, it's not yet my hour. Well, guess what has come? His hour. His hour has come. And, and man, it'd be nice to just sometimes know when your appointed hour has come. Sometimes we feel like we're wandering lost in the dark. How many know God always has a plan? He knows exactly where we're supposed to be and when we're supposed to be there. He has a sovereign plan. We talked about that a, a couple weeks ago, that like God, he, he knows. Like Habakkuk, it says to, to wait for it. And if it seems slow, if it seems slow, don't, don't worry. It's hurrying to its appointed time. It is actually hurrying to its appointed time. I, uh, this week, uh, it's actually Friday, I was asked to drive a bus. Um, the principal, he was feeling sick, and I said, hey, if there's anything you need, just let me know. Trying to be a nice guy is the worst thing to say. He said, I do need something from you. Can you drive a bus for me on Friday morning and Friday afternoon? I was like, sure, trying to be the nice guy. Not a good idea. Uh, I climb on the bus at 6 a.m. 6 a.m. These poor kids. Um, these poor bus drivers. Climb on the bus at 6 a.m. in the dark, and I have no clue where my first stop is. And so I'm just wandering down Cisco Road in the dark, guessing, and all of a sudden I see a kid just kind of pop out on the side of Cisco Road, and boy, I just lock him up, right? And this kid gets on the bus, and as the kid gets on the bus, I was like, hey, do you know where the next stop is? And this kid... Just walks straight to the back of the bus, puts their hood up, and lays down in the seat. I'm like, hey, where's my next turn? Nothing. Not a word. So I just start creeping forward, and I think there's a left coming up, and I find a left, and I take it some, some dirt road in the hills of Arkansas. I'm pretty sure I saw a guy on his front porch. It was creepy and scary. And I was like, where am I going? I come to this house. I stop. I look to the kid in the back. I say, is this, is this the place I stop? The kid peeks up over the seat, looks at the house, 
hides back behind the seat. I was like, are you kidding me? Like nothing. I'm not getting any help here at all. So I wait. I was like, I'll honk the horn. That's, that'll work, you know. So I go to honk the horn. No horn. It's broken. I was like, oh, my gosh. It's going to be a long, long. Creep up to the next house. What about this house? Kid looks up over the seat. It's again. What are we doing here? Like, why? Why? Go up to the next house. Stop. I was like, I can't just stop at every house I see in the Ozarks. Some kids finally get off on the bus at that stop, and they're all these four kids bound on the bus. I say, hey, I need help. I don't know where I'm going. And so these two siblings start arguing. I'll help. No, I'll help. Oh, I'll help. No, I'll help. I say, I don't care who helps me. I just need to know where I'm going. So we come up to this T, and this girl goes, go left. And the boy goes, no, I'm helping. The girl goes, go left. The boy goes, no, I'm helping. The girl says, just turn left. So I turn left. And we drive for three or four miles down this dirt road. And we stop at this. He goes, right here. I said, where are the kids? And the boy says, well, we're 30 minutes early. I said, why are we 30 minutes early? He said, because you were supposed to turn right back there. And then come back through this way. I was like, why didn't you say something? He said, because you were listening to her. So there's way more to this story, which we don't have time to get into this, but that's the way the rest of the morning went. Sometimes it'd be nice just to know where you're going, where your appointed time, your appointed hour, your appointed place is. And that's the way some of us feel about life in general, right? Some of you probably this week are just like, God, what is happening right now? Like, I know you have a purpose and a plan for my life, but I feel like I'm just wandering around through these crooked roads and, and what I found in my life, because how many have had some things happen to them and you were just, to you and you were just like, I don't understand. I don't get it. And it wasn't until years later maybe that you look back and realize that you've been on a path this whole time. And here we see Jesus. And Jesus, it seems sometimes like he's just, he just happens to show up at a well for, with a Samaritan woman. Or he just happens to meet with a Pharisee in the middle of the night, or he just happens to stumble upon a man who can't walk. But when we look back, we realize that every single encounter that Jesus had was appointed by God. We can be confident that the same is true of our life, that even though the enemy he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, that Jesus has come to give life and life more abundantly, and he's bringing us to our appointed time. And all we have to do is trust in him and have faith that he will bring us to where we're supposed to go. When you look right here, it's, it's Passover. The thing about Passover is Passover is this big feast, the biggest feast of the Jews, you could say. And this is a, a, a festival where they're not just celebrating, but they're remembering what the Lord has done for them when the Israelites were in Egypt. We talk about that. This is actually the third Passover we see in the book of John. And what they would do is they would bring what they call the Passover lamb. And this lamb, what they would do is they'd bring it to the temple and they would sacrifice it. It was a, a substitute for their sins, for, for the, the wrongs they've committed, for the, the broken relationship with the Lord. They'd bring this, this lamb, this Passover lamb, this sacrificial lamb, and they would, they would kill it and sacrifice it. Historians say that... Um, there have been as many as, many as 250,000 lambs sacrificed 
during Passover in Jerusalem. That's a lot of lambs. And what's interesting to think about on this day, which we call the triumphal entry, and I, and I, I want to say that during the triumphal entry, this is one of the only one of the few accounts that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four gospel writers talk about the triumphal entry. And so at the same time that Jesus is going in Jerusalem, at the same time, the people are bringing their Passover lambs into Jerusalem. Because Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. And the the parallels there, we're going to see are astounding. If you look in verse 12, it says, The next day, this is after Lazarus, remember, is been raised from the dead and people are amazed by it now they're plotting to kill not just jesus but lazarus too verse 12 says the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that jesus was coming to jerusalem so they took out branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord even the king of israel And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, that's when he was raised from the dead, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And so we have this, This crowd says in verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised from the dead continued to bear witness. So they're all talking. They're continuing to say, like people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. You have other people saying who were at the tomb, like "This this is the guy that raised Lazarus from the dead. Like they're telling people what they've seen and what they've heard. And you realize that's our job today as well, is to simply tell people what we've seen and heard about the goodness of Jesus Christ. How many have ever had Jesus do something amazing for you? This should be the first story off our lips. So many times we're so keen to tell other stories or, or at work even complain about things that aren't going right or, or at school like talk about the latest drama. Or, but the thing that should be the first thing on our lips is what Jesus has done for us or what he's done for someone else. The reason that the crowd went to me is because they heard about the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. They're talking to each other. You're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Everyone's going after Jesus. I think it's so interesting here because this is the ultimate, like showing that Jesus is king. They're, they're putting their, if you look in the other gospels, they say they're, they're putting their robes on the ground and they're putting palms on the ground this is their version of rolling out the red carpet for jesus he's coming into town he is the king he is hosanna the one who will save that's what they're claiming you are the savior you're the one who will redeem you're the one who will save us but the problem is so many of them don't understand how he will save them see what they think is going to happen is that jesus is going to overthrow the roman government and then bring peace i just I think it's crazy. Every time we get to an election, those that, that really say, they're like, man, we just, we just really need some, some good people elected in office. And don't get me wrong, we do. And that we need good Christian leaders in our nation. But if your hope lies in getting the right leader 
in the right office, then you are just as guilty of looking for a Messiah in the wrong place as these Jewish people. We want good people in leadership and politics, but that is not the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. Like, that's the answer. And so people get, they all get all hot and bothered and stirred up about politics. And they have lots of opinions. You, you realize that the scripture, it calls, the scripture calls us to pray for our leaders, not just if they're Republican. It, it calls us, like in the scripture, it says to honor the emperor. Can I tell you, the Roman emperor was a lot more evil than your president. I was talking about it last night, and my dad reminded me of a, a political rally. It was supposed to be a church service, but it was a political rally in Branson, Missouri. And from the stage, this has been some 20 years ago, they just continued to disparage the president, make fun of him. And we left that, that night, and my brother said, what was that all about? And my dad said, the Lord was not honored in this place tonight. Listen, we're called to pray for our leaders. It doesn't mean we don't disagree with them. It doesn't mean we don't have well-reasoned, thought-out opinions of what they've done. It does mean we have to act like Jesus loves them. Jesus wasn't the conquering king they had hoped for. He wasn't the king with a sword riding in on a white stallion. He was the humble royal man coming in on a donkey, on a colt. Prophesied by Zechariah. You look back at this verse right here, it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. And Zion is just Jerusalem. It's that holy hill there. It's, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Here Jesus is once again fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, and it's his time. You remember all the times Jesus hid himself? Like John, just read these to you through John. John 2, 4 says, his hour had not yet come. John 2, 24, he, he said he did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because it wasn't his time yet. John 5, 13, there's a lot of stuff going on, and Jesus actually withdraws and hides himself from the crowd. Like, he has these opportunities to make himself known. What does he do? He hides. John 6.15, after he feeds the 5,000, it says they want to make him king by force. So what did he do? He withdrew. And John 7.6, his brothers are saying, hey, it's time to go to this other feast to make yourself known. And he says, but my hour has not yet come. And John 8.59, they're upset with him and they pick up stones to kill him. So he hid. John eleven fifty four. 54, it actually says in just a few verses before this, it says he no longer, after raising Lazarus from the dead, he no longer walked openly. So he's kept himself hidden and back. And still in his hiding, multitudes still come. Still in his desire to not make himself known. He's being made known and talked about. He'll actually tell people. He heals them and say, don't talk about this. And what do people do? They talk about it. See, when Jesus gets a hold of your life, you can't help but let it come out of your mouth. And so that's one question for yourself. Can I help but let Jesus come out of my mouth? If he's not coming out of your mouth, 
you have to ask yourself, is he really in your heart? His hour had not yet come, but now we see here Jesus is. He's here. And he's, he's being declared king by the people. And what's interesting to fast forward to what Steve was preaching on last week, which sounds weird to say, how will Jesus respond to this? Respond to this, don't you know who I am? I'm Jesus, I'm awesome. He looks at his disciples and says, do you get it now? I'm awesome. That's not his response. His response is to go in the room with his disciples and wash their feet. Can you imagine being a disciple and, and seeing Jesus declared king, Hosanna? And a few hours later, he's down washing your feet. That's not us. When we get promotions, we're like, everybody, look how awesome I am. We win awards and we think it's about us. We get some accolade and everybody, look at me. Jesus does this and he serves others. Do you realize that the moment you're elevated, the whole purpose of you being elevated in any way, shape, or form is to serve other people around you. To use that position to serve those around you. In fact, you're more well-equipped to do so. Like if anything good happens in your life, the example of Christ is to use that greatness to then shift into service of those around you. Instead, we do like so often we see on, on those videos online when a famous person gets pulled over or something. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? Do you know how important I am? But Jesus came to serve. I'd encourage you this week to go back and, and look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and their account of the triumphal entry. For the sake of time, I won't read those. Go to verse 20. And this is interesting because Jesus, he had come to the Jews. God has chosen to reveal himself to the world through the Jewish people. He could have chosen anybody, but he chose this people. And so Jesus, he came to this people, but it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these are just, it doesn't mean people from Greece. What they mean is just some non-Jewish people. Uh, they were probably Jewish in religion, but they had born Gentiles. So they're there to worship as a Jew, but they weren't Jewish by birth, if that makes sense. They weren't from there. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And we don't know why they told Philip. Philip is a Greek name. So maybe it was just some familiarity on their part. Like, well, he seems Greek, maybe. His name's Philip. So they went and asked him to, can we talk to Jesus? And Jesus answered them, the hour has come. The hour has come. Say that with me. The hour has come. 
Over and over again through this book, he said, it's not yet my time. It's not yet my hour. It's not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. But here he's saying, the hour has come for what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he will follow me. And where I am, there my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And there's just so much in this. I, I, I'm going to have to parse down some of my comments on this here. For the sake of time. Jesus says, unless a grain falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. There's there's a a contrast here we don't really see easily in English, but you can see a little bit. It dies alone. Say alone. That's... That's an accurate description sometimes of how we feel when we serve the Lord. Sometimes we just feel like alone. And here Jesus, he's describing, he's describing his death on the cross. He's describing like people will reject him. He'll be buried in a tomb. He will really literally go into the earth. But he says you die alone, but then you bear much fruit and this this contrast between dying alone one solitary seed by itself versus bearing much many fruit you can't just hang on to that seed and just hope it turns into something you bury it you have to let it go it dies and what happens it grows up and bears much fruit and there's times in our lives i believe that we we hang on and we cling to these things that we should Bury and let die. I know even in this church that when I when I first became lead pastor here, I'm trying to do all the same stuff my dad did. My dad was like, "You've got to, you've got to just let it die." Just he said, hit, "My dad's words was, you got to set that church on fire. You just got to burn it down.'" And he didn't mean literally, because we. Yeah, you're welcome, John. But there's things that even in our lives that need to die. Some, some of them are good things. You realize that? Some of them are good things. How great it was. Think about this. How great was it to have Jesus on earth? How great was it for him to preach to the multitudes and heal the sick and raise the dead? I mean, in my strategy, let's, instead of Jesus dying at 33 years old, let's let him run the table. 70, 80, 90 years doing ministry how much more effective would have jesus been if he just kept going except we know that's not true is it it's this paradox it talks in this it says if you love your life you'll lose it but if you hate your life you keep it Keep it. And, and this word life, this life is actually like 
your soul, like your ego, like who you think you are. You're all great. So we're trying to preserve who we think we need to be. And what he says is if you love your life, you lose it, but if you'll hate your life, what you'll find, it's not the same word life there in the Greek. It's actually a different word. It's, it's a word that means like vibrant eternal life, like something better than just you, something greater than you. And, and all of us, we, we, we fall in this trap to try to hang on to us. And this is, this is the point where I struggle greatly. This week I was, I was reading the Word, and we all know like Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And like we love the fact that our sins are nailed to the cross. Amen? Is anybody with me on that? How many have screwed up at some point this week, and you've had to confess your sin to the Lord? And the rest of you are not raising your hands, you're lying in church. That's a sin you need to confess to the Lord. No, I'm just kidding. But I, I'm so grateful. Like, that when I'm crucified, I'm, I'm dying to sin. That's what the scripture says. And then I'm reading Galatians chapter 2, and Paul starts talking about being crucified with Christ. And as he's talking about being crucified with Christ, he's not even talking about sin. He's actually talking about my good works. My good works are crucified. So I'm supposed to die to sin, but I'm also supposed to die to my good works. My sin is crucified, but so is my good works. They're crucified on the cross. So what does that leave? The only thing is left, the only thing that can remain is that which can be resurrected. And the only thing that can be resurrected is Jesus Christ himself. So the only thing that matters is not my sin or my good works. The only thing that matters is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Which is what we're celebrating this next week. I've heard, unfortunately, I've heard three or four times this week from different people in our own congregation who've made statements similar to, it's my life. And I address it publicly because if I've heard it three or four times in the last week in our own congregation, it's probably being said more than just those three or four times that I've heard because believe it or not, people try to be on their best behavior around their pastor. People making statements similar, it's my life. But here Jesus, he's called us. If you look in verse 26, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. That means if we, if we serve him, we, we follow the example of Jesus. He says, wherever I am, that's where my servants will be. Where's my servants? Where's Jesus? Jesus even Jesus didn't say, well, it's my life. Jesus has laid down his life to serve others. And friends, we have to be careful to have that kind of thing creep into our hearts. Well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be around them. I don't want to go there. I don't want to, I don't want, but... Too many times we, 
use this worldly term of healthy boundaries. And get, don't get me wrong, there are things healthy boundaries. But sometimes we use worldly terms to justify unrighteous living for the sake of being emotionally healthy. And don't get me wrong, I, I do believe in counseling. I do believe in healthy boundaries. I do believe in all these things. But sometimes these things are just an excuse to not live a life that Christ has called us to live. And I can't sit here in front of you and tell you in front of a crowd who's doing which ones. That would be inappropriate to just make a blanket statement and say, you're all wrong. I don't know. You know, though. Like, you know. The Lord is convicting your heart. And so we don't let people into our lives. We don't serve others because it's my life. And this is not the example of our Lord. C.S. Lewis, in The Inner Ring, he, he talked about how in society we think success is having an exclusive group. The in crowd, if you will, right? Here we are, we've got us. And yet Jesus, he did the opposite. Jesus opened himself up to everyone. He made himself available to the Samaritan woman. He made himself available to the religious Pharisee. This is our Jesus. And I look around this room at people who love people. And do we get it wrong sometimes? Yes. But the fact that we're willing to look in the mirror and say, you know what, I got it wrong this time, means that we're people who love the Lord and will continue to pursue Him. And guess what? Next week, we'll be doing better than this week. Not because we're anything good, because Jesus is good. And the more I look at Him, the more I become like Him. Jesus then says, I have so much more I want to dive into there, but... I think we get the point. Dying to self. Being like Jesus. Knowing that He is literally days away from going to the cross at this point. Everything He's saying at this point, it's the last week of His earthly ministry. It's Passion Week at this point. So everything He says seems to have a little more weight on it. So in verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. So here's his conclusion in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. He's greatly troubled. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus was troubled. Like sometimes we get troubled and we feel bad for feeling troubled. I'm telling you, if you've ever been troubled, I have good news. Jesus felt troubled. Except Jesus' prayer is different than ours. We feel troubled. When I feel troubled, I'm like, God, I don't like the trouble. Rescue me. I'm done with this. I don't like the way it makes me feel. I don't like it. I don't, I don't like anything about it. 
James, he tells us, count it all joy when you face troubles of many kinds. The end result is that you're mature and complete, lacking nothing. I don't, I don't want to be mature and complete, lacking nothing. I just don't want to have troubles. I'll be an immature person, but no problems. How many vote? That sounds like a good life. You're not being honest. Even Jesus, he's identifying this is a troubling hour. He knows that the cross is coming. He knows that he will be put into the ground and die. Several times he prayed, let this cup pass from me in the garden. An honest prayer. And I, I personally don't believe that he was just talking about dying on the cross when he said, let this cup pass from me. I, I honestly believe he was talking about being the one man who will carry the weight of the sin on his shoulders and experiencing the full wrath of God. None of us have ever experienced the full wrath of God. Do you understand? There's only been one, and it is Jesus. So he prays, let this cup pass from me. But he doesn't stop there. He says, yet not my will, but yours be done. How many times when we're going through difficulty, do we say, God, I... I'm tired of walking through this. I'm tired of the hardship. I'm tired of the pain. I'm tired of the heartache. And instead of praying, well, what we usually pray, which is, so Lord, rescue me. Instead of saying that, saying, but Lord, use this to glorify your name. See, suffering is part of the Christian life. Are we more than conquerors? Absolutely. Absolutely. But as we look at the example of Jesus, Jesus reminds us time and time again, don't be surprised when you go through hardships. Don't be surprised when you have suffering. He even says, in this world you will have trouble. Yet all things, the purpose of all things, Lord, is to glorify your name. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. And so even in the middle of my trial and my troubles and my tribulations, like even in the middle of the pain and the hurt and the heartache and all the things we're walking through, if we could get our eyes off of being saved from the moment and put our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and put our hope and him and saying, Lord, use this hardship to glorify yourself. I, I don't know how many times in the last decade I've prayed for my brother Adam, who's been off living in the world. And many of you know him. He grew up here. He knew better. And just ran as hard as he could the opposite direction. And I stand before you this morning like thanking God 
Because the Lord is moving on my brother's heart. And the Lord has drawn my brother back to him. And, and of no effort of mine. In fact, everything I've ever tried to do to lead him to the Lord has only made it worse. Because it's been through my religion and my logic and the things I thought would work. And drove him away. But the Lord got a hold of his heart. And as deep of darkness that he has walked through to get to this point, how great are the testimony of God working in his life today. And I choose to believe that God will use it to glorify his name. The tears I watched my mother cry for my brother. I now see tears of joy in her eyes, even last night as we talk about how God is moving in his heart. And every time he takes me now, I just weep because I see Jesus doing something in this man's heart and in his life. And I'm excited because I get to spend Christmas with him, which has not been my, a statement I would have made in years past. It would have been like, pray for me. I have to spend Christmas with my brother. We have to realize today that even in the darkest moments, the Lord will glorify His name. The enemy gets nothing. The enemy will not win. The enemy is defeated. The enemy thinks that all of his plans and purposes, all his stealing, killing, and destroying are going to accomplish something. But the Lord in His great mighty and majesty will use every purpose of the enemy and he will turn it to glorify his name. I'm telling you, there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I get to be a part of the story that will bring some to glory. Robert, can you join me? I'll try to decide how far I want to go here. Next week, we will not be in John because it's Christmas. Look at verse 28. It says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. A voice said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there and heard it and said that he had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the rule of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Do you realize, like, like we sing a song when I was a kid. It was, lift Jesus higher, lift Jesus higher. Lift him up for the world to see. And we were all like, all right, let's lift Jesus up. Um, yeah, this, this is actually talking about the cross. 
Like when we're singing that song, we're actually singing, put Jesus on a cross, put Jesus on a cross. Like Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to me. He's, he's actually referencing a, a time where Moses, this is hundreds of years earlier. Moses is in the camp in the wilderness and snakes had come through and started biting people and they were dying, all these venomous snakes. And the people said, Moses, like, we're dying. And so this is what, this is what God told Moses to do. He said, get a, get a, a staff, a bronze staff, and put a snake on it and lift it up. And if someone gets bitten by one of these snakes, all we have to do is go and look on this staff that's been lifted up and they will live. And actually, you still see that symbol today like on ambulances and hospitals and stuff, that, that snake around a staff. Have you ever wondered where that came from? That came from a story in the Bible. And Jesus is actually saying the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent, the serpent in the desert, I will be lifted up. And the same way that people would look on that serpent live, as anyone looks on me, like truly looks at me, as I'm being lifted up, I, I'm going to draw all men to myself. You knew who was going to die on the cross. Do you realize this is the same thing he calls us to do? He calls us to die. He calls us to sacrifice. Do you realize that today and other parts of the world, there's like believers who really like for them to gather together as a church body requires great sacrifice. Like if they get caught, it could, it could cost them a lot. Like there are places in the world today where serving Jesus is a death sentence. sometimes we, we forget about that living here in, in a really great nation where we have freedom and I'm thankful for it but sometimes freedom fosters complacency I want to say that again sometimes freedom fosters complacency and, and we don't realize what a great thing that we have I'd like to close by reading to you about a church father, Patrick Hamilton, who back in the 1500s was part of the Catholic Church. And he didn't think it was right because he didn't think that you should have to do all these ordinances and jump through all these hoops to get saved to be accepted by the Lord. He thought 
that the only way to heaven was through Jesus Christ. He thought that the common man and woman should have access to scriptures instead of having to go to a priest to tell priest to tell them what it meant. That's what he thought. And so the Catholic leaders invited him to speak at their university for about a month. And he didn't realize it, but what they were doing was they were sitting in on his lectures and writing down all the things they considered heresy. Come speak at our conference. Oh, awesome. So during that conference, he's getting up and he's telling people that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. And what they do is they use that time he spent lecturing that conference as ammunition against him in court to label him a heretic so they could have him killed. What they didn't realize is that during that 30 some odd days is that many important people heard the goodness of Jesus Christ and began to give their lives to him. So after they branded him a heretic, they decided to burn him at the stake. History tells us that that day was a, a windy day and because of the wind and the lack of burning materials, it would end up taking six hours to burn him. At the place of ex execution, you'll have to forgive, this is John Knox writing, it's old language, but you'll be all right. At the place of execution, Master Patrick gave his servant, who had been his chamber servant to him a long time, his gown, his coat, his hat, and other like garments, saying, these will not profit me in the fire, but they will profit you. After this, of me, you can't not receive no more commodity, except for the example of my death, which I pray you bear in mind. Albeit to be bitter to the flesh and fearful before men, yet it is the entrance into eternal life, which none shall possess that deny Christ Jesus before this wicked generation. The innocent servant of God being bound to the stake in the midst of some coals and some timbers and other matter was appointed for the fire. Some powder was made and set on fire but could not be kindled and the wood nor the coals. And so remained the appointed to death and torment. He was slowly burning till men ran into the castle again for more powder and for more wood able to make a fire which at last being kindled with a loud voice sir patrick cried out lord jesus receive my spirit the fire was slow and therefore his torment was the more the most of all he was grieved by certain wicked men amongst them was friar alexander excuse me, Fire Alexander Camel, Campbell, who continually cried out, convert heretic, call upon Our Lady. 
He's telling them to pray to the Virgin Mary. To whom he answered, Depart and trouble be not, messenger of Satan. Can you imagine? From the fire. But while the friar still the friar still roared, Master Patrick said unto him, Wicked man from the fire, wicked man, you know the contrary, and the contrary to whom you have confessed. I appeal you before the tribunal seat of Jesus Christ. After which, in other words, which could not be understood because of the vehemency of the fire, the witness of Jesus Christ got victory after long suffering. It means he died. He finally got victory after long suffering. That was the last of February in the year of our God, 1,528. A few days later, the friar departed from life. It was plainly known that he died in a frenzy as one despaired. After he died, the ministers of the Catholic Church said, this actually hurt our cause. They said, if we're going to burn any more heretics, they said, do it deep in the cellars. They said, because the reek of the smoke of Mr. Patrick Hamilton has affected as many as it blew upon. Like people begin to ask, why was he burned at the stake? Why? Because they heard how long it took. And they, they heard. And so the message of the gospel spread through his trouble and tribulation. Y'all, I don't even like to go outside on a hot day. And yet here's this man of God who my dad's very proudly says is our great, 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 great uncle. Burned at the stake for believing that eternal life only comes through Jesus Christ. By believing on his name. And so where's our heart positioned? Like, do we get offended when we come into church and, you know, the room temperature is a little hot? Or today is cold, is that what I'm hearing? I'm not saying that we don't recognize, I'm saying do we get offended by it? When we have brothers and sisters throughout history who have died for the sake of his name. Like who can we love better and it costs us something? Like this is, this is a ministry of death. We have to realize that the Christian life is the ministry of death. Like, we don't go to church to see what the church can do for me. And I am proud of this church. I, that, that rarely rears its head in this church. But we go to church to serve our brothers and sisters, to die to ourselves. Like, this is, do you realize this is one of the men we're going to have to look in the eye when we get to heaven? 
What kind of stupid crap are we offended by? And we let distract us from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just sometimes worry that heaven's going to be a really awkward place for the American church. This is what I do know, that our brothers and sisters who have gone on before us in our persecuted church, I, I, think, I think they'll understand, because they're gracious people of God, the time and place we were born in. But if this is the time and place we were born in, what are we going to do with the freedom that we have? Like if we have freedom and we're not being persecuted, then what will we do? I'm not saying we need to go out and try to get persecuted. What I'm trying to say is, if we have this freedom, then how will we use it? And friends, I don't know how long this freedom will truly last. I mean, I'm not trying to be one of these conspiracy theorists or doom and gloom, but there could be a day coming where we're not allowed to say the things we feel like we should say for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's already true in my workplace. Where I'm living on what I can say. So what choice do I make in my workplace? And what choices do you make when you're around your family this next week, what choices do you make? How do we minister the love of Jesus Christ? How do we serve those people around us? What does selflessness look like to you individually? Can I tell you something? It's not your life. It's not your life. Bow your head with me. If we could be like Philip, that people would come to us and say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Can I ask you, how will you be Jesus to your spouse? How will you serve them? How, how will you be Jesus to your kids? Kids, how will you be Jesus to your, to your parents and your siblings? Like, how will you serve them? How will you die to yourself for their sake, to your coworkers? Like, what does that look like? Faith without works is dead. What, what action is the Lord calling you to? Not to prove you're good. We know that Christ demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still crummy, 
and awful and wretched. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Loving is in the death. So Lord God, today I just pray Lord, that we would die to ourselves so that you may live through us. God, I pray we would die to our sin so you may live through your righteousness in our lives. That we would die to our good works so you may live through our service to one another.